It's good to know that when I start walking out, you guys go, aww. It's a, uh, okay. Uh, it's all right, it's all right, it's good, it's humbling, and I, I need it. Uh, hey, good morning, you guys, how are you guys doing? How'd you guys sleep? <laughs> oh, I know, don't worry, you'll sleep well tonight. Um, counselors, did you sleep? All right, you won't sleep tonight either because you're going to be too busy crying yourselves to sleep after you lose the staff versus counselors broom hockey game. So, oh, sorry, sorry. That was maybe a little overconfident. I haven't been on the ice in two years. So we'll see how it goes. Um, but I'm excited. That'll be fun. All right. Well, hey, I, I've been having a, a great uh, weekend so far with you guys. Like I said, I love coming up here to Hume. And you know, one of my favorite things to do up here, something that uh, we don't really get to do in the winter, um, is I love going fishing. Does anybody in here like to fish? Raise your hand if you like to fish. Look at the people with their hands raised. Those are the boring people. Yeah, I don't like fishing. It's boring. It's boring. I tricked you. Now, all right, all right, right. Here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I want... I want to like fishing, all right? I want to be the kind of person that really loves getting up at 4.30 in the morning and going out in the freezing cold and sitting in a boat and just sitting in a boat. Because that's what fishing is. You're just sitting there. And I, I, I don't love fishing, but you know, my wife really, really loves fishing, all right? My wife loves to fish. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I've tried, and, and I know this is like... A, it's like, I need to turn in my man card. Like, this is a sad thing. My wife loves fishing, and I'm like, oh, I can't get into it. I don't know. Can we watch a musical? Or like, can we, you know? But, um, but no, my, my wife loves fishing. And when we lived here at Hume, our house backed up to the pond over there in Meadow Ranch. And so my, what my wife found out was that when our son, when he was a baby, when he was napping, she could get the baby monitor, go in our backyard, and fish in the pond. Now, here in the lake, over here, they stock that with like real fish, but in the pond, they don't stock it, so the fish are um, the natural fish that live here in the stream and in the woods. And so what that means is they're about that big, all right? So my wife would fish for fish that are like this big, which you can't do anything with a fish this big. You can't even make, like that's not even a fish stick. You gotta make like nuggets, right? If you're gonna have a fish that big. And so, so she wouldn't keep them, she would just throw them back. But but really, when you go fishing, if you know anything about fishing, that's, uh, that's probably 90% of the fish you catch. They're this big. They're little fish. But there's this thing that we do when we fish, and we exaggerate the size of the fish that we catch, right? In fact, there's even a term for this. We talk about telling fish stories. And a fish story is when you tell the story of a fish that you caught, and every time you tell that story, that fish gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. So say you go fishing, and you catch a fish that's this big, and it's like, it's fine, it's a little fish, but it's not, and then you tell the story the next day, and you go, oh man, I caught a fish that was this big. It's a little bit bigger. And then, then you go to school the next day, and you say, oh, I went fishing with my parents this weekend, and I caught a fish that was this big, and it gets bigger and bigger, and pretty soon, years down the road, you're telling the story, you're like, I was at Hume Lake, and I threw a line out into the water, and I pulled out a 25-foot great white shark, right? And it just becomes this huge, monstrous thing. It grows, and it grows, and it grows, and this is such a thing in fishing that it's even become a, a phrase telling fish stories. Well, this next section in the book of Jonah uh, is what some people think is a fish story, 
right? And, and, and in some ways it is. It's a story about a big fish. It's probably the, the part of Jonah that you and I, the first thing that pops into our head when we think about the story of Jonah is getting swallowed by the whale or the big fish or, um, you know, whatever. Uh, it's the word that's used there could really mean a whole bunch of different things, but, but fish is our best guess. Um, but we, we have this, this idea of this big fish, and some people say that this big fish swallowing a man whole, that this is completely impossible, that this could never, ever happen, and it's just a big fish story. It's a story that's just been exaggerated and exaggerated and exaggerated over time, and that's how we end up with this incredible story of this man being swallowed and in the belly of a fish for three days. And when you think about it that way, it, it does sound kind of unbelievable, right? It does sound kind of crazy that this guy is thrown out of a boat and he's swallowed whole by a fish and then spit back out on land three days later. That is an incredible, crazy story. But like I told you guys yesterday, the story of Jonah is not some fictional made up thing. It's a real story of a real guy who really lived and who, yes, was really swallowed by some giant fish and spit back out three days later. And I know that that sounds incredible. I know that that sounds unbelievable. I know that that sounds almost impossible, and that is the point. That's the point. The Bible doesn't include all the stories of fish eating other fish, because it'd be a lot bigger book if it did, right? No, this story is included in scripture. God had it written down so that we could read it here thousands of years later because it's this incredible picture, this incredible instance, this incredible example of who God is. It's an incredible example of a, a part of God, an attribute of God that we call his sovereignty. That is a great question and we're gonna answer it. So what does sovereignty mean? What does it mean that this is an example of God's sovereignty? That this story that's so incredible that, it, that it's almost unbelievable, what does it mean that, that it shows God's sovereignty? Well, sovereign is a word we probably don't use very much. It doesn't come up in our normal, everyday lives very often partially because we don't have a sovereign in our nation today. A sovereign is a word for a ruler. Sovereign is a word for a king. We don't have that, right? But there are times in history where, where everyone did. They had some kind of sovereign, some kind of ruler. So when we say that God is sovereign, that's what we mean. We mean that God is king, that he's king over the universe, that he's king over all creation. I gave you guys a little picture of God as king last night. When we went to the book of Isaiah and we, we saw the throne room of God and how he sat on his throne and when he spoke, the heavens shook. We talked about that. And so when we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he's king, but what we also mean is that God is in control. That God is in control. And so when we see this story of Jonah that we're gonna read here in just a second, 
What I want you to look at, what I want you to think about as I'm reading, as you're following along in your Bibles, I want you to think about the fact that God is in control of everything that's happening. That the king of the universe, the king of heaven and earth is in control of every piece of that story, of every event that's taking place. Because that's what it means that he's sovereign. It means that he is the ruling, reigning, controlling king of everything. That's what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. And I'm not just making this up. This is something that is all throughout scripture. In Psalm 103, it says that he established his throne and he rules over all. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter one, it says that he works all things according to his will. That he works all things according to his will. And then in Job 42, verse two, Job says this to God. He says, you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job says to God, God, you can do all things and no purpose of yours, no plan of yours, nothing that you're doing can be messed up by anyone else. Job is saying to God, you're in control and I can't mess it up. You know who else can't mess it up? Jonah can't mess it up. You know who else can't mess it up? You can't mess it up, I can't mess it up. God is in control and no purpose of his can be thwarted, can be messed up because God's heart is for his purposes. God's heart is for his purposes. So with this idea of sovereignty, that God is the ruling and reigning king of the universe, that he is in control of history, with this idea in our minds, let's go ahead and read this next section of the book of Jonah, and I want you guys to be paying attention to how God rules and reigns, to how God shows his control in this story, all right? So, let's see, I think we left off around verse 10 of chapter one yesterday. Um, so that's right where, where we will pick up. Jonah has disobeyed God. He's headed to Tarshish instead of um, to Nineveh. He's gone to the front front yard instead of the backyard, right? And he's on the boat. God begins to bring this storm. The wind and the waves are tossing the boat about. The boat's about to break up. And this is what we see happen. So in verse 11 is where I'm going to be picking up. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. That's a good word, tempestuous. It's this big storm. The sea's growing rougher and rougher. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for O Lord, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. Listen, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. And Jonah's in the water, it says then, 
And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. What do you think Jonah's gonna be saying from the belly of the fish? What would you be saying from the belly of the fish? It's kind of smells in here. Uh, God, can I get out of the fish, please? Right? That's not what Jonah says. Listen to what Jonah says in this prayer from the belly of the fish. It says this, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, out of the belly of the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and roots of the mountains. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O God. And when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to faint idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. All right. So Jonah's been thrown into the sea. He's faced God's judgment. He's drowning in the water. God sends this big fish to swallow him up. And from the belly of the fish, what does Jonah do? He prays to God and he gives thanks. He says, God, thank you. Thank you for saving me. I was dying in the water. I was going to drown. I was as good as dead, but you have saved me. Jonah gives thanks to God from the belly of the fish. All right. So I told you to, to kind of keep your minds, um, keep your eyes open as we were reading and, and to think about how God showed his sovereignty in that part of the story. And I think he shows it a couple of different ways. He shows his sovereignty over a couple different things that I wanna point out. The first is that God shows his sovereignty over circumstances. God shows his sovereignty over circumstances. So I want you to think for a second about the sailors that Jonah sailed with. Those men that Jonah sailed with, because we see an incredible um, arc happen with them. We see this incredible change happen with the sailors that Jonah sailed with. See, he boards the ship at the beginning and he tells them he's running away from God. And they go, okay, get on the ship, cool. And they head off to Tarshish. And then Jonah goes down below the deck, he starts taking a nap and the waves start, uh, start picking up. The storm hits and the sailors start to get worried. And look at what they do in verse five. In verse five, it says this. Then the mariners, that's the sailors, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. So the seas start picking up, the storm starts hitting, these guys start to get scared. And what do they do? They cry out to God? No, no, to each to his own God. They cry out to their false gods. They cry out to their idols. They cry out to these false gods that they worshiped. 
Did those gods help them? No. Why? Because they're not real. Because they're not sovereign over the waves. Because they're not in control of this situation. They are false, fake gods. They are idols. They call out to their idols, and what happens? Nothing. And then the captain goes down and he talks to Jonah. He says, Jonah, you need to call out to your God. What are you doing? Why are you sleeping? Call out to your God. And then look at, uh, at verse 10. Jonah tells him, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they go from this storm is scary and I'm gonna call out to my fake God but he can't do anything. To now, Jonah, what have you done? You've offended the real God, the powerful God, the sovereign God. And they're afraid of God. But then if we read on even further, eventually, as Jonah convinces them, throw me in, they throw him in to the water, the storm calms down, and then let's see what these guys do. In verse, um, we're gonna be in verse 16 here. That was in chapter two, there we go. In verse 16, the sea ceased from its raging, and then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So they went from being afraid of the storm to being afraid of God to fearing God. Being afraid of God and fearing God are not exactly the same thing. See, in one, they were afraid of what God was gonna do to them, but after that, they were in fear, in awe of God. They were amazed at God's majesty, his power, that he was in control of that storm. And what did they do? They worshiped him. They made sacrifices to God, the real God, the true God. They made vows to him, they worshiped God. And so we see in just that, we see God's sovereignty over circumstances. Because you see, Jonah sinned against God. God told him to go to Nineveh and he went to Tarshish instead. But even by Jonah's sin, God was able to work that for good. What Jonah meant for evil, what Jonah meant as rebellion, God used to save these sailors. These men who were seeking after these false gods who through their experience with Jonah on their ship come to realize that the God of the Bible is the maker of heaven and earth, that he is the sovereign king over everything. And while they start their journey worshiping their false gods, they end it worshiping the true God. And that wouldn't have happened if Jonah hadn't gone off towards Tarshish. See, what Jonah meant for evil, God meant for good. We see this other places in scripture as well. There's a really famous verse in Genesis chapter 50. 
And it's something that's said by Joseph. If you're familiar with the story of Joseph, I won't go into the whole thing, but Joseph had a really rough relationship with his brothers. He had these brothers who, who hated him. They ended up beating him up, selling him into slavery. All right? And then decades later, God used Joseph to save not only his brothers, but to save the entire nation from this famine that was coming. And when he's reunited with his brothers, his brothers apologize because Joseph's now in a position of power. They say, Joseph, don't kill us. Joseph, please, please, we're sorry. We're so sorry we beat you up and sold you into slavery. That's all on water under the bridge, right? But what does Joseph say? He says to them, I'm not going to harm you because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph was able to forgive his brothers because he believed that God was sovereign even over those incredibly difficult circumstances that he faced. That even when his brothers were wicked to him, God was still in control over his circumstances. We see that same thing here with Jonah and with these sailors. So the first is that God is sovereign over circumstances. The next is that God is sovereign over nature. God is sovereign over nature. This one is all over the book of Jonah, right? Where did this freak storm come from? Was it just a high pressure system meeting a low pressure system? Like what, what's going on? No, this is God showing his judgment. He's sovereign over the storm. He's sovereign over the wind and the waves. And then when Jonah is thrown into the water, when he's sinking and he calls out, God save me, by pure random happenstance, a big fish comes along and swallows him whole, right? No, not pure random happenstance. It happens because God commanded that it happens. Because God is in control. Because there's someone writing this story. It's not just happening. But a sovereign king is ordaining that it happened. Said that God brought along a fish. In my translation, it says that he appointed a great fish. That he appointed a great fish. God is in control of the fish as it swallows Jonah. He's in control of the sea as it tosses the boat. He's in control of the fish as it spits it out. Later, we, in the book of Jonah, we will see more of God being sovereign over nature as we see him grow up a tree, as we see him send a worm to eat it, as we see all of these things. God is in control, not just over circumstance, he's also in control over nature. And then the last part from this section that I want to point out to you is that God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over his mercy and his grace. Remember, all of this started with God telling Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go. I want you to share my mercy, my grace with the people of Nineveh. I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to tell them that there's still time for them to repent, for them to turn from their wickedness, to turn towards me, and for them to be saved from my judgment. And Jonah told God, no, God, I'm not going to do that because you're not the one in charge of who gets mercy and grace around here. I am. That's what Jonah thought. That's why he went to Tarshish, because he didn't want God to just give out grace to whoever God wanted to. But now that God's beaten him over the head a little bit with the fact that God's in control and Jonah's not, what does Jonah say? Well, at the end of his prayer there in the belly of the fish, he says this, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you 
What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What belongs to the Lord? Salvation. Salvation. Jonah's salvation from sinking, salvation from, from dying there in the water, God was the only one who could provide it. Nineveh's salvation from perishing under God's judgment, the backyard gnome's salvation from landscaping, God, the gardener, is the only one who can provide it. He's the only one who can save, and he saves who he will. We don't get a say in it. We don't get to say, God, that's not for, for those people. That's just for people like me. Jonah didn't get to say, God, your mercy and your grace isn't for the Ninevites. It's just for Israelites like me. Because salvation didn't belong to Jonah. It wasn't his to give. It belonged to God, and God told him, go and share it. So we see in this story his sovereignty over circumstances, his sovereignty over nature, his sovereignty over salvation. Ultimately, when we put this together, what we get is that God is sovereign over everything. That God, the ruling and reigning king of the universe, Lord of heaven and earth, he is sovereign over everything. He is in control and his heart is for his purposes. His heart is for his purposes. He will do what he wills to do. His heart is for his purposes. And as Job said, no purpose of his can be thwarted. Nothing that he wills can be ruined by someone else. His heart is for his purposes. He's in control. No purpose of his can be thwarted. So then... If that's true in the life of Jonah, as we've seen, it's true in our lives as well. So what's the pressing question? If God's in control and his heart's for his purposes, then the question that comes to my mind is what exactly are his purposes? If he's in control and he's gonna do what he wills, then what does he will? What is, what is he going to do? What are his purposes? We can't know the answer in all the little details. I can't tell you what God's purpose for your career when you grow up is gonna be. I can't tell you that. And you can't tell me that right now either. But I can tell you in the big picture what God's purposes are. And I can tell you that because God's told all of us that. He shared that with us in his word. He shared that with us in scripture. If we want to know what God's purpose is, if we want to know what God's will is, then all we need to do is we need to open up God's word. And so let's do that. Let's look and see what are God's purposes. This ruling and reigning king of the universe, what are his purposes that his heart is committed to? In order to answer this, I want to go to the book of Romans. So we're going to be in the New Testament in the book of Romans. We're going to look in Romans chapter 8, because what I want to show you is that God has two primary purposes. As he is Lord over everything, over all circumstances, over everything that happens, he's working all of those things together for two main purposes, two primary purposes. And the first one, 
we find in Romans chapter eight, verse 28. It says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is that saying? What's, the, what's one of the primary purposes of God? The good of his people. The good of his people. God works all things through his purposes. One of those primary purposes is the good of his people. And so he says he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All happy things, all sad things. All easy things, all hard things. All comfortable things, all painful things. Everything that has ever happened in your life everything that has ever happened to those around you, scripture tells us that all of that, God is working together for the good of those who love him. Now what does that good look like? Is this God promising us easy, happy lives? Is it something where when something hard happens to us, when we lose a loved one, we can go, oh, well, God's working it all together for good, so this isn't really happening. It's, not, it's all gonna get better at the end. No. God explains what that good looks like. He doesn't say all things work together for the good of your success in school. He doesn't say that God works all things together for the good of your bank account. He doesn't say that God works all things together for the good of your popularity, your reputation, for the good of your friendship, for the good of your whatever, your Instagram followers. No, he says God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then if we continue on into verse 29, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what is God working all things together for the good of his people? What does that look like? It looks like him taking his people, people who know him and love him, and maybe that's you if you're in here and you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, if you know and love and serve God, then he's saying he's working all things together for your good, not for your temporary happiness, but for your ultimate good. And what is your ultimate good? It is being conformed into the image of Christ. Your ultimate good is being made more and more and more like Jesus. And sometimes that process is gonna be painful and sometimes that process is going to be hard, but God is saying it's for your good. Because those who he foreknew, he also predestined that they might be conformed to the image of his son, that he, that he, who he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. If you know and you love and you serve God, then you know that one of God's purposes is your good. And your good is being made like Jesus. Why? So that you might be a part of God's family. 
that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers, that you might be a child of God, a brother or a sister to Christ, an heir to the kingdom of the ruling and reigning king of heaven and earth. God's first purpose is for the good of his people. Good of his people. That's not his only purpose. That's not the only thing that he works all things together for. He has another purpose as well. And that second purpose we see in Romans chapter 9. Just about a page over probably for most of you. Romans chapter 9 verse 17. It's talking here about Pharaoh. If you remember the story of of Moses and Pharaoh, Pharaoh was this this evil, wicked king who ruled over God's people, who held God's people, the Israelites, as slaves, and he was brutal, he was genocidal, he was a monster. But here in Romans chapter 9, God explains exactly why he allowed Pharaoh, this horrible, awful man, to enter into this position of power. And it's his second big purpose. It says this, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What is God's purpose here? It's that his power be shown and his name be proclaimed. The first purpose is that everything that happens happens for the good of those who love him, for the Christ-likeness of his people. The second purpose is that everything that happens happens that God's power might be shown, that his name might be proclaimed. Another way we say this is it happens for God's glory. God's purpose is the good of his people and the glory of his name. Here's the thing, the glory of God's name is the good of every one of us. Our ultimate good is not having an easy, painless life. Our ultimate good is living a life where we are made like Jesus and where we get to see the glory of God, where we get to glimpse the splendor of the king of the universe who sits on his throne in heaven, where we get to see how great and beautiful and awesome and powerful he is. Sometimes this is hard to remember. We're facing hardship where we're facing struggle. It's hard to remember that that God's glory is so great. The scripture tells us this. That the, the trials of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to us in Christ Jesus. And showing us that glory it's part of God's purposes, the purposes of his heart. 
His heart is for his purposes. And what are his purposes? It is the good of his people and the glory of his name. God is in control. God is sovereign. God is ruling and reigning. There's no part of our lives. There's no bit of what's going on around us that God is not in control of. He is sovereign, he is ruling, he is reigning. He is good, he is loving, he is merciful. And he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his service. He is working all things together for his people. And if you number among his people, if you have a relationship with Christ Jesus, then you can be sure that the king of the universe, the ruling and reigning God is working every single thing that has happened in your life or is happening in your life. He is working it for your good that you might be made more and more like Jesus and that you might see the glory of the God who made you. God was in control in Jonah's life. He's in control in your life as well. But sometimes that's hard to see, isn't it? I mean, maybe this isn't the first time you've heard this. Maybe you, you've been around church and you've heard over and over again, God's in control, God's in control, God's in control. And you go, okay, fine. But as I look around my life and I look at the horrible things that I've had to go through, I look at the pain that I've dealt with, I look at the ways that people have hurt me, and I go, how could a good God possibly be in control of this? Either God's not good or he's not in control because this thing that's happening to me, there's no way that this could be for my good or for God's glory. There's no way. So how do we deal with that? How do we understand that? How do we deal with it when we're told that God is in control that he's working things for our good and for his glory, for his purposes. But we don't see it in our lives. How many of you guys have a dog? Lots of dogs. How many of your dogs love going to the park? Yeah? Going to the park, yeah, you're right, right, right. How many of your dogs love going to like the pet store? You ever take them to the pet store? And they're like sniff around at all the places that other dogs have peed? Yeah, it's fun. Um, how many of your dogs just love getting in the car? Like you open the door to the car and they're like, yeah, let's go, let's go. And then there's this horrible sense of betrayal when you get your dog in the car and you pull up to the vet. You know what I'm talking about? The dog realizes where they are and their tail goes whoop right in between their legs and their ears go down and they start like shaking. Well, when my wife and I got married, we got married really young. We didn't have kids for eight years before, before we, uh, we were married, sorry, married for eight years before we had kids. And during that eight years, we didn't have kids, but we had this dog, right? Um, his name was Tufer, uh, and Tufer was a great dog. I, I loved Tufer, favorite dog ever. Um, because he was our child, because we didn't have any real like human children, so we had a dog. And Tufer had a problem, though. Tufer had a, a disease called Addison's disease. And um, it, it, it was scary at first, but once we had it diagnosed and we got him on medicine and things, he was fine. But it meant that Tufer had to go to the vet 
about every month or so. So we made pretty regular trips to the vet, and, and early on it was even more than that. It was like every week or something like that. And Tufer didn't like going to the vet. He didn't like it at all. I don't think many dogs like going to the vet, right? And so we, we'd drive up to the vet, we'd get out of the car, and he would immediately boop, tail between his legs, ears down, shaking dog, right? He's a big dog, and I couldn't really carry him, so I had to you know, lead him in, and he's just like slowly taking these reluctant steps into the vet. You walk into the door to the vet's office, and you're just hit by this wall of like smells and sounds, and it's overloading for me, so how much more for a dog, right? And we sit there, and eventually we go into the, uh, to the exam room, and the, the tech comes along, and they pick him up, and they put him on this hard metal table, right? And it's cold and it's slippery and he can't get his, his footing. And we kind of hold him there and the, the vet comes along and checks him and pokes him and squeezes things. And, and then he, he takes a needle and he gives two for a shot. And this was something that needed to happen. Because if this didn't happen to two for every month, then he was going to die. But think about it from his perspective for a little bit. Put yourself in the mindset of a dog going to the vet. You see, as people, we know why he's there. As his owner, I knew why he was there. I knew that it was necessary. I knew that it was for his good. But Tufer didn't know that. He couldn't know that. Even if I could get down and I could, even if he could speak English, right? And I could say to him, Tufer, you're gonna have to get this shot because that's gonna let you run and play and live and eat and fart at inopportune moments and like all the things that he loved to do, right? You have to get the shot because it's gonna let you do all of those things. Even if I could explain that to him and he could hear my words, he couldn't understand it because he's a dog and he has no idea of the future. He has no concept that what happens now is going to affect what happens later. So he has no way to know that this pain now is going to do something later. And so for him, the experience of going to the vet, all it is, is going to a, a smelly, scary, cold, bright, painful place being put on this slippery, cold metal table, being grabbed and squeezed and prodded by somebody he, that he doesn't know or trust, and then this needle comes along and he has this pain, and all this experience is, is it is painful, it is hard, it is cold, it is scary. Once or twice we had to leave him overnight at the vet and it was lonely. And for two, for all that he knows is that going to the vet is this horrible, painful experience. And even if I could explain it to him in words, he wouldn't be able to understand that this horrible, painful, hard, scary moment is actually for his good. But I mentioned Tufer was a big dog. He was a big pit bull mix. He, he could have cause some harm at the vet if he got in his mind, I'm not gonna be here. If he decided he didn't wanna be there, we would've had a hard time keeping him there. But he never did that. He walked in slowly, but obediently. He went where I told him, he waited when I told him, 
And why did he do it? Because he was a good dog. And he knew that even if he couldn't see what was going on, even if he could, couldn't understand how this horrible, painful, scary experience could possibly be for his good, he knew that I was in control and that I loved him and that I cared for him and that I would not do anything that would harm him. So if I was there, it was okay. And if I was there, it really was for his good. Because I understand things more than he does. I think on a different level than he does. I can think to the future. He can't understand it. He can't understand what's different, but he can trust me so he doesn't have to. In Isaiah 55, God says this, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Guys, when we go through these painful, scary moments in our lives, these things in our lives where we go, God, I can't see how you could possibly be working this for my good or for your glory. I pray that we would remember that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and that we don't need to see what God is doing in order to trust the God who's doing it. That even when we can't see how a circumstance, how something going on in our lives could be for our good or could be for God's glory, we can trust that it is because God has told us that it is. And we can trust that he's in control because he is the ruling, reigning, sovereign king of the universe and his heart is for his purposes. And so my hope and my prayer is that when we go through those times of difficulty, when we go through those times of pain, when we go through those times of struggle, when we go through those times where we can't see what God is doing, I hope and I pray that we will have the trust that my dog had in me. That we will trust that even if we can't see what's going on, that our God is in control, that he knows us, that he loves us, that he is working all things for our good, that we might be made more like Jesus, that we might be a part of his family, and that we might glimpse the glory of the God who made us. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you're sovereign, that you're in control as you showed so many times throughout the life of Jonah. That you're in control of circumstances, that you're in control of, of nature, of the physical world around us, and God, that you're also in control of salvation, that you save and you alone. God, I pray that this fact of your sovereignty, this fact that you are our king, that it would be a source of comfort for us. That we would be able to rest in it that we would be able to see how even when we can't see what, we're, what you're doing, we can trust you because you are the king. You know us, you love us. You work all things together that we might be more and more like your son.
In Jesus' name, amen.